This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I want to give special thanks to Audible.com for supporting today's show. To get a free audiobook of your choice, including How to Rob a Bank, the new Freakonomics book co-written by today's guest, Stephen Dubner, and to do your part in supporting our show, too, just go to audible.com forward slash big think. Big Think shares bright ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. For Think Again, our producers scour these archives and surprise me and my guests with unexpected ideas that spark unscripted conversations. Today, my sometimes co-host Eric Sanders and I are joined by Stephen Dubner, one half of the world-famous Freakonomics duo and co-author of the new book, How to Rob a Bank. Thanks for coming on the show, Stephen. Sure, my pleasure. Okay, so here's how this works. Each week, Big Things producers unearth a clip from our interview archives and totally surprise us with it. We have no idea who the expert is that's going to be talking or what they're going to be talking about. It could be about anything. The molecular structure of egg salad. Are you okay with that, Stephen? I love egg salad, so yes. Okay, so Jonathan, what do you have for us today? For this week's clip, we have film producer and writer Jonathan Taplin. I'm pretty sure you guys will have uh, plenty to talk about. I would argue that piracy is problematic. If you look at the music business, pretty much every piece of content in the world is available legitimately, whether it's through iTunes or Spotify. And yet, still, the amount of piracy out there is huge in the music business, which says to me that free always wins over something that costs something. The second problem I have is that much of piracy is ad-supported. So Pirate Bay or most of the big pirate sites are supported by advertising. So the history of the media business is always that advertising was the support for making content. The problem with Pirate Bay or any of the big pirate sites that take in millions of dollars of advertising is none of that money ever goes back into paying for content. And ultimately, if all the advertising money moved from legitimate to pirate, then there would be no content economy whatsoever. Whether we can overcome that is really a matter of decision on the part of advertisers. Do they want to be supporting illegal content or do they want to support legal content? And that, that will make the final decision. What's your initial response to that, Stephen, as someone who writes a lot about economics? 
Pirate Bay, okay, not okay, why? When you get into the way that people are making their livelihoods, or especially these days when you get into a way that people used to make a livelihood and find it being under assault by technology, people tend to get very ideological. Like, I like stuff and I want it free and I don't give a crap about the people that make it. But moreover, I really don't give a crap about the companies that get rich from it. Therefore, I think all piracy is good. There's that view. Then there's the other the other view that we just heard. So I think that neither view is exactly right. The research that I've seen, which is mostly in the realm of music, and this was from a while ago when Napster was coming in and eating everybody's lunch, it seemed to show empirically that piracy didn't really decrease sales of music very much, that it wasn't responsible for that very much. And the reason would seem to be that the kind of people who are most likely to pirate, at least in that setting, are either the kind of people who would never buy music anyway. They're the kind of people who are going to, quote, steal some music some of the time, which might lead them to buy more music through a different channel and maybe even more music than they would have if they hadn't pirated anything. So empirically, it shows that, yeah, piracy doesn't just wipe out an industry the way that view holds. That was, what, uh, over 10, 15 years ago. Does that still hold, do you think? Well, I don't know. But I mean, the fact is that there's a lot less piracy now than there was then iTunes became the legal pirate. One of the reasons that piracy arises is when there's no attractive cost method for getting what you want. If something is either going to be very, very expensive relative to what I want to pay for it, or I have to steal it, you know, the incentives are a little bit stronger to steal. Of all the revolutionary things that iTunes did in the music store, let's say, I think the most revolutionary is that it unalbumized music. You know, music was my first thing. That was what I did before I was a writer. And I, like everybody in a band, you kind of dreamed in the shape of making an album. But if you think about it, the album was a conceit that was not the original form of pop music by a long shot. It was all about the singles. The idea that the album was the unit that everybody wanted seems in retrospect a little bit ridiculous. And one thing that iTunes did is allowed people to buy what they wanted, which was individual a la carte stuff rather than the whole package for 10 times the amount. So it's one thing to say, I guess, that piracy isn't as bad as some copyright zealots may say. But I'm curious, from the Freakonomics perspective, do you see any benefit to piracy? I think the thing is, most people tend to assume, it seems to me at least, that when there are people doing illicit things, whether it's making copyrighted material available for free or consuming pirated material for free, that they are, quote, bad people. So we kind of tend to look at that through a moral lens. And our argument is that you miss a lot of the action. You miss a lot of reality if you have that view, because much more likely is that people are just people. And the same person can be a, quote, good person one minute and a, quote, bad person the next based on what the incentives are. You take someone who might seem to be very altruistic in one setting, and then you tweak the incentives a little bit. Maybe there's no one around to watch, or maybe, you know, there's not a tax break, or maybe he's just not feeling it that day. All of a sudden, that person who seemed to be a pure altruist is now super greedy looking. So I think that piracy is certainly good for people who want to consume stolen stuff, but we shouldn't forget the fact that under current, you know, legal and copyright scenarios, it is stolen. I personally don't consume pirated stuff, but I think the biggest reason I don't is that I kind of like paying for stuff that I want because I think that's the way markets work. And I think it's good to give money to people who are doing stuff that I want. That's my vote. And also, 
I would consider a piracy site a better place for some mayhem to happen to my computer network. <laughs> so maybe I'm acting purely out of self-interest. Like the things that I just said, which sound kind of like I'm a moral person, maybe those are not true at all. Not, it's just I'm purely yeah. selfish and I don't want to get a virus. I know many, many artists, maybe them especially, because they're the ones who can't afford to buy this <laughs> stuff, who are making decisions to download and consume pirated content and who are somehow putting that into an like, ethical box in their brain that makes it okay. Basically, we like to think that the laws and customs have evolved to the way they are because they're optimal and that when there's a new technology or a new idea or something, that we have to immediately jump and decide whether this is acceptable or not, rather than just seeing it as a, a development in the continuing evolution of the way markets work. You know, back when vinyl records were the medium, and I was a musician and I had no money, so I wanted to have a lot of records, so I tried to find ways to get records without paying for them. So one way was by writing about music, so I got sent free records. Let's say I was getting sent 50 records a month. 45 of them were just pure crap. So what do I do with those? Well, I got them free. If I wanted to, I could take them to a record store and sell them. I mean, they were stamped with not for resale, but nobody paid attention to that. So I could do that. And then the used record store could take something that they might pay me a quarter for, 50 cents for, and sell it for $5. So who's capturing that? Absolutely nobody. That is actually much less different from piracy than we tend to think. Due to the anchoring effect, you know, when you have something available for free for a while, what does that do to how we value content going forward? Is the bar set so low that, for example, Spotify and Netflix and companies like this can pay pennies on the dollar to artists and creators that they would have paid in the past? And, and we thank them for it. And we, we say, oh, at least it's not free. We're getting paid something. You know, I think a good case study to look at is the difference between the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So I was working at the New York Times when we first went online. And there was a kind of subplot, which was that a lot of the people that were involved in putting content online were really excited about the idea of a digital spinoff so that NYT Digital would be its own company. And there was the thought that as the NASDAQ was starting its huge, huge, huge climb and NYT Digital was thought to perhaps be heading for an IPO in that sphere, then, man, I can hit it really big. So I'm all on board with this idea where a bunch of my colleagues are doing exactly what they've always done before, and they're going to be compensated in the future for it exactly as they were before, which is to say they're on salary. But I, by dint of this digital pipeline that I happen to have sat next to and am kind of help pushing out, I could get really, really rich in part because we're taking this thing that costs a lot to produce and we, because we work at the same company, get to distribute it for free. And then the Times leadership made the decision to have everything be free. But now the Times was stuck with being in a place where there's no IPO. They're giving away everything that they report on for free online, whereas the Wall Street Journal, which is in a lot of ways an almost perfect parallel, had started charging almost from the outset. If you fast forward and look at the result, the Times has been hurt financially far more than anyone in that building ever dreamed it could be. If you look at the difference between the two, one that made everything free online from the outset then had to try to persuade people in a number of ways to recapture some of that value in the journal, which just said, yeah, we make content. If you want it online, that's just a different form of paper. Yeah, maybe we'll make it cheaper, but of course you have to pay. So I think you're right. 
the problem with free is the power of free is very profound and it's all and it's <laughs> yeah. all but it's also a signal that either it's not worth very much or it's a stalking horse to kind of capture your allegiance or to capture your data and I want to interrupt our conversation with Stephen Dubner for just a moment to thank Audible.com once again for supporting Think Again. Like podcasts, I've found audiobooks are great when you're in a crowded subway with nowhere to sit and not even room enough to open up a physical book. And there's something remarkable about having a book read to you, something that activates my earliest and best memories of reading. I particularly enjoy books read by their authors. One recent favorite from Audible was Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, a powerful, poetic letter from a black American to his teenage son about living in a racially divided society. To download this or any other audiobook of your choice, please go to audible.com forward slash big think. And now let's get back to our conversation with Stephen Dubner. We were just talking about giving data to online companies in exchange for free services. It astonishes me that people get so worried about people having access to their data that they don't like. So whether it's a government or a medical system or something, when indeed most people who are listening to this probably give away almost all their personal data every day to at least two or three or five or ten vendors like Facebook and Google and so on. But I mean, that's the trade-off. You may not really know it or think about it too much, but Google gives you a lot of stuff for free, but it's not for free because you give them a lot of stuff in return. But how does that apply to, let's say, the Pirate Bay or a company that doesn't really offer anything else other than a platform to get stolen merchandise? You know, look... A lot of people will do a lot of things, even if there really isn't anything in it for them. First of all, for all I know, Pirate Bay may have generated millions and billions of dollars through advertising or other methods. And I mean, to kind of go a little across the border now, if this were a bright line issue and we've been kind of hanging out a little bit on the left side, say, to go a little bit across to the right side, it's hard to argue that without strong incentives that as many people will invest and create whatever we're talking about investing and creating and right if people can't make a living or maybe even get really 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 rich by making something that can be protected and then sold then you're not going to get that stuff now you could say well there are a lot of other people who don't really care about that and that may be true and I mean, if you wanted to be really dyspeptic, you could say, well, then the only people you're going to get are the people who are totally incompetent, who have <laughs> who, whose time is worth absolutely zero, or you're going to get just trust fund kids doing this because the only people who can afford to do that kind of thing are the people who don't m need to make a living, and therefore it's going to be skewed. So you could, you could almost pitch it as like a discrimination argument that in order for real equality, you have to pay people for it, right? On the other hand, it is remarkable how many people are willing to work hard and be creative and be thoughtful um, for absolutely no recompense other than psychic or reputational, like Wikipedia is, is a good example of that. I think that is actually a better way to look at the urge to make things cheaper free. I think a good way to think about it is how can we harness that desire in people without destroying the markets that work pretty well to produce good work software, government, whatever. And if it's all and if nobody's getting compensated for anything, it's hard to argue that you're going to get much quality. 
you know, I've heard the argument that people are just sort of diversifying what they do. Musicians are touring more so that something like Spotify becomes more like a promotional tool. Right. Right. So when I was in a band and signed a record deal, which was a long, long time ago now, 20, 25 years ago, something like that, the model was a standard one. The record company would give you a bunch of money to make your record. Then they would try to sell it as many copies as they could. You had an advance against royalties. You'd try to recoup if you sold a few hundred thousand, you started to make a whole lot of money, and then you would tour, and that was an additional money. But weirdly, the record labels didn't really have much right to that live money, which is why a lot of bands concentrate on that. So now you could say, well, man, that model got totally blown apart because record companies kind of lost most of their leverage, and then everything else changed a lot too. And therefore, it sucks to be a musician now because you kind of can't get paid. Well, even if that were entirely true, which it's not, you can get paid, but you, you have to get paid differently. There's another big factor here, which is that the digital revolution has given everyone for very low cost a way to distribute themselves. I mean, that is such a massive, it's almost like a public good. Maybe it is technically a public good. I'm a writer. I used to need either a publication like the New York Times or a publisher to let me publish a single word. I had no right. other option. But now I can do whatever I want and distribute it for almost free. I can write a blog. I can tweet. I can write on Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever I want. I started a, a podcast, Freakonomics Radio. The cost of distributing it is so, 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 so cheap compared to any other old school dis distribution method, primarily because iTunes built a channel that we all now f are free riding on like crazy. And it works for them, so they're getting something out of it, right? If, if there are a couple hundred million downloads of different podcasts every day or every week on iTunes, that's good for them because it helps sell more of their devices. It's certainly good for me because there's a high-quality, very visible way for people to get this product. So, like, it's just it, once you begin to omit the variables that don't work in favor of your argument, it's easy to make an argument that so-and-so is great or so-and-so is terrible, but the world isn't that simple. Stephen Dubner, thank you so much for joining us today and playing our crazy podcast game. Is there anything else that our audience should know about your new book, How to Rob a Bank, or anything else that we haven't touched on? Everybody should go buy 12 copies, and then you can leave them on park benches around. So you can both participate in the regular old, old, old-fashioned free market, the kind of robber baron free market. So I'll be the robber baron in that case. You know, it's a good example of what we've been talking about with books is like a public library. Could you imagine if you tried to start a public library today and say to publishers, here's what we're going to do. We're going to buy like two copies of this big bestseller of yours, and then we're going to let a thousand people read it for free, right? The publishers would literally go to like the American Library Association with a bomb and blow it up. They would say, this is so wrong, illegal, et cetera. But we have that system. So coexisting within publishing is what you might call piracy, but it's a library instead and, you know, traditional sales. So, look, I think markets and the legal regulation thereof tend to sort themselves out in a way that helps the most people kind of get what they want and need. And there are occasional massive corrections, but I think that people get way more agitated about it than they need to. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Please join us next week for a very special guest. Here is a hint. An anagram of his name that in no way befits his 
dignity or prominence is lard humanizes with an S instead of a Z. Lard humanizes. And if you figure it out, tweet at us at Big Think Again. And there may be a special prize in it for the first few people to tweet. See you next week.